Well, good morning, everybody. Um, today, let's see, I guess Ken taught last week. He thought, taught on a, a, a slightly, took a slightly different angle to theology um, than w- what we've been doing for the last, I think this is the 22nd class. Can you believe we've been doing this for like almost six months? Um, so what we've been doing um, over the past six months, in case you've forgotten, is uh, systematic theology. And so, of course, theology is the study of, of God. Um, and systematic theology takes categories of, of, of topics uh, and then um, basically looks at the Bible and, and articulates what the, the entirety of the Bible says about, um, about a particular topic. And so some of those topics are God himself, um, which we call the- theology proper, um, Christology, which is um, the study of Christ, pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, you can get to angelology, which is the study of angels. All right. Um, that was an easy one, right? So there's several different topics that have traditionally, um, that the, the um, theology has bro- been broken into and, and categorized so that um, we can look at things in a kind of a systematic way. So what Ken did last week was he took a slightly different angle, and he did what's called biblical theology. And what biblical theology does is it takes an idea or a topic and follows it through, through Scripture. And so the one that he um, kind of got going on but, but wasn't able to, I think, go all the way through was the concept of the Messiah or the seed um, in Genesis 3.15. And he kind of followed that through. And so biblical theology, I actually prefer the term progressive revelation, right? Because it's God revealing a little bit more um, um, about something over time, right? So if you think about the seed found in in Genesis 3.15, there's just the hint of something of of a redemption that was going to take place. And then later in Genesis, that idea is formed a little bit more and more. And then through the rest of the Mosaic books, it's formed more and more. And then as you, you know, the Old Testament. And then finally, we have Christ, where you have the full revelation of, of Christ. And that, um, so that, that idea is, it culminates in, in Christ himself. So that was biblical theology. Um, today, we're going we're gonna to explore a slightly different angle. And it's called historical theology. Uh, so, who wants to tell me what historical theology is? Anybody? On the second row? <laughs> Go ahead. This is just a guess. Is it how, how theology has been uh, developed through history, like through church history? Yeah, very, very good. You, what happens is you kind of mash up theology with church history. And so, you go over the last 2,000 years... And you say, you know, what did people believe about a particular topic, you know, through periods of time of, of, of church history? Now, a difference between church history and historical theology is church history often tends to focus on kind of what happened, like events and that sort of thing. Um, uh, with uh, historical theology, as opposed to church history, it's more the idea of, of why things happened, specifically what people believed, okay? So you can look at um, church history will teach that, you know, in 325 A.D., there was a, 
uh, a council called uh, um, uh, the, the Council of Nice in the city of Nicaea that happened, and it'll talk a little bit about some of the things that uh, went on there. But what uh, historical theology will do as it's as it's moving through history is it will talk about what the different um, people in that council believed, and then why it occurred. And we're actually going to talk about that um, a little bit later today. All right? All right. So um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, thank you uh, once again for this morning. Thank you for today, this um, time that you've provided for us to get together and to um, study in this case, it's what um, the saints have believed about you, and, and some un, unsaints, some believers have believed about you as well um, throughout the last 2,000 years. Father, we uh, ask that this time be profitable and that you and you alone are glorified. We love you. We trust you. I will pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's start with turning the clicker on. Here we go. All right, so at the end of the, the New Testament, um, if we, we follow the flow of history from the end of the New Testament, you know, from Acts and then um, uh, flowing forward, we have this group of folks that we call the Apostolic Fathers, okay? Um, the first Christian theologians were leaders of Christian uh, congregations. They were elders throughout the, the Roman Empire. Um, they've come to be known as the Apostolic Fathers because they are assumed to have been men who knew one or more of the apostles, but who were not apostles themselves. Okay? Now, so we're going to talk about the Apostolic Fathers, and I'm going to quote some of them here in a, in a few minutes. Um, but what I want to talk about briefly is roughly what, what they believed. Um, we hadn't formed... Um, specific theological language had not been articulated concerning these different topics, okay? So the early church, um, they were strongly monotheistic, believe that there is one and only one God. However, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was fully divine as well. And so there is one God in heaven, and then there's Jesus who is God. And they accepted that, um, as, as they should, um, but there wasn't a lot of reflection on it. There wasn't a lot of, um, of uh, uh, reflection. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. So the, you can see in the Bible the baptismal formula found in Matthew 28 and the apostolic blessing found in 2 Corinthians 13 pointed to a divine reality involving all three. So there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit um, but they had not really, again, articulated how those things um, work, work together. But the doctrines of the Trinity and the person of Christ, um, the doctrine of the person of Christ had not been fully articulated. The rise of her heretical beliefs would, would change that. So what we're going to do is um, walk through a series of um, heretical teachings and then kind of responses to them, and we can see how, how these, these doctrines were not invented but discovered, okay? So the first one was called docetism in the first century. 
Um, you can actually, uh, well, we'll explain what it is. Um, docetism, from the, the Greek word uh, for to seem or to appear, teaches that Jesus did not really enter creation as a man. He only seemed to be a man. He was, in fact, strictly a spiritual being. So these folks had no problem with the divinity of Christ. What they had a problem with was the humanity of Christ. Okay? So what is the problem in believing something like that? We associate his, uh, our shortcomings with his shortcomings. Okay. We associate our shortcomings with, with his shortcomings. Yes, sir. If he wasn't fully human, then did he die for our sin? There's okay. No sacrifice for sin. Was he our, our representative, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, good. So if he wasn't fully human, then did he actually die on our behalf? Anybody else? Yes, sir. So did they not believe the virgin birth that he was actually born? Um, I think some of them did. Um, trying to remember, yeah, even the, the next group, even they believed in the, in the virgin birth. But yeah, some of them, I think, believed that there was a set of docetists who believed that there was um, a man, Jesus, and then at the, at the baptism, um, that he was switched. Yeah, I mean, it's all kinds of wacky stuff, right? So he was switched, but people really believe this stuff. And um, so, yeah, so it's kind of virgin birth, yes and no, depending on who you talk to. All right. So early in your Christian walk, um, when you maybe you hadn't read the entire Bible, um, maybe you hadn't thought, you know sat through a bunch of systematic theology classes. Um, so early in your Christian walk, do you do you think that you could have been convinced that Jesus was not a human? Yes. Yes. And that would be you want to you want to reflect on that or just they didn't have they didn't have the scriptures. Like right. We do. Right, absolutely. And so, so the, the, the distinct advantage that we have now mm -hmm. over, you know, all of the, yeah. you know, before the scriptures were sure. a canon, mm -hmm. it's an amazing advantage that we, right. we, we need to reflect on. A absolutely, yeah. And George has touched on something. Um, so he said that they, they didn't have the scriptures. And, it's, um, and that's, that's true. There was a lot of, uh, there were... The, the, if you go back to the, the mid-first century, so 40s, 50s, 60s, that time frame, 70s, um, the Gospels um, were, were written, and they began to be circulated. And then very, very quickly, they were pulled together, and um, the, the four Gospels were circulated as, a, as the four, as, as, a, as a, a collection together. Meanwhile, Paul is writing his letters and they're being circulated to the different churches. And as churches began to get, you know, the letter, a copy of the letter to Colossae or a copy of the letter to um, Ephesus, almost said to Ephesia, um, to Ephesus um, or to Rome or to whoever, um, they began to collect these writings and they began to circulate as what we call a corpus, right, or as a, as a collection as well. But that was mostly in the West, Okay, that was mostly, if you, wish I had a map. So if you think of Asia Minor here, then you go up into like Greece, and then you go over into um, Italy, et cetera. His, most of his letters would have, would have pro pro proliferated that direction, okay? In the East, there was more um, P 
Peter, James, that sort of thing, because those guys tended to stay home um, closer to Jerusalem, okay? And so it took a while for all of the letters to be circulated kind of all all over the place, but um, Christians pulled them together, and then gradually, um, within a few hundred years, we have the entire corpus. So when we're talking about these folks... um, when we're talking, and we're talking about Christians who are responding to these folks, they are doing this without the entire, you know, ESV New Testament um, or NIV New Testament or whatever it is that you carry, okay? So George, George is right in that they, they didn't have the entirety of Scripture. Um, but I do believe the Holy Spirit, um, you know, used what, what light they had and illuminated their minds in order to to understand and come to faith in, in Christ. Yes, sir. The point around that is they didn't have printing. So right, yeah. Scriptures, even when once they were collected together, yeah. were not, it's not like everybody had a Bible. Yeah. I mean, it was, the church leaders might, but a lot of the common people a- Absolutely. Not, or may not even be able to read. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And so there was a lot, a lot of, they depended on, um, you know, faith comes by hearing. They, had, they depended a lot on, on the, the gospel being articulated um, person to person. Yes, ma'am. Not to, you know, project my weaknesses onto the early church. Yeah. But, you know, when Don't I became a Christian, there were probably a dozen Bibles in my home. Mm-hmm. Within a couple years after that, I had enough reading skills to actually read them. And still, it doesn't mean that I read the whole Bible and read it frequently as I had opportunity to. And so, you know, perhaps with the rarity of access to scriptures, people did study more when they had it than than I did. But, Mm -hmm. you know, just because you you have a letter of Paul circulating around your town doesn't necessarily mean that every person has read or heard all of it enough times to to really know it. Yep, that's a good point. That's a good point. And, And a lot of what we're talking about with you know, the doctrine of the Trinity and then the, what we call the hypostatic union or the idea that um, Jesus is fully man and, and fully God, um, those things really do take the full witness of Scripture to, to really to under, understand fully in the way that, um, that God, God desires us to. Yes, sir. I'll just say, that, you know, the safety net is that, you know, according to Ephesians Two and uh-huh. others, you know that that the faith that we exercise is a gift of God, and yep. so and so when he <clears throat> when he uh, ordains someone to salvation, mm-hmm. he's going to ensure that they get the right mm-hmm. message and right. understand and believe the right message, and so and so the path to salvation has always been through mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit, right? Not through the Scriptures per mm-hmm. se, right? And so. Uh, uh, that's the, I guess that's the, the net that everyone has always had. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, and the, for yeah. some of the things that you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, they didn't have scripture to interpret scripture. Right, right. Um, so. Right. Yeah, good point, good point. Um, and so the idea there is that you can see how, for, you know, especially from a human perspective, you can see how somebody could be lulled into to believing something like that, and then you get into trouble, right? <laughs> So why would somebody believe something like that? And, um, yeah, well, you guys want to, any thoughts on that? Would there, go ahead. 
if my conception of God as a all-powerful spiritual being is is my baseline, then yeah. the concept of him taking human form right. is at the very least at odds with that initially. Right. Uh, if not just totally contradictory to it. It's like he's up there, right. he's beyond this fleshly existence. So it'd be really, really hard for me to accept uh, yeah. he took on flesh. Right. Uh, yeah, see, and that's and that's a a great one, is that we have this high view of God, um, perhaps coming from a Jewish background or something, like a very high view of God, and so God is is not going to suffer. He's you know, there's um, Absolutely, right. Naturally, intrinsically disassociate from God. Right, right, absolutely. And then on the Greek side of the house, there's the idea that they had this this dichotomy between spirit and material, where spirit is good and material is bad. All material is bad, okay? Um, Which is not a Christian teaching, okay? And so their idea would be a benevolent God would not become material. As a matter of fact, he wouldn't even create material. And, and what we would say is they're bringing presuppositions, okay, preconceived notions to the Bible. You got a smile over there. Were you thinking that word, or is this something irrelevant? Randy being Randy? Okay. All right. Don't make me separate you guys. All right. Um, so, uh, so there's the idea that... Um, the preconceived notion on the part of a lot of Greek folks that, um, Greek philosophers, that spirit is, or in Greek religions as well, that spirit is, is good, material is bad, and so God would never become material, right? It wouldn't happen, okay? So what are some examples of presuppositions imposing themselves on Scripture today? What's that? Ask Ask it a different way? Okay. Um, Even today, people fall into the same trap of bringing um, presuppositions, unhealthy presuppositions, to reading Scripture. Can you think of any examples of of where and how we we see that today? Yes, ma'am. A good God would not allow bad things. Okay. A good God would not allow bad things. And so where does that lead? Where does that go? Uh, there's no hell. There, you know, um, they, they struggle with there being a good God because yeah. of all the bad things, right. wars and atrocities and right. um, even nat- quote-unquote natural disasters. Right. So if, if there's truly a God there, then these things wouldn't happen. Right. Okay, good, good. Did everybody hear that? Yeah. Okay, and so there's the idea that, okay, a good God would not allow bad things to happen. A good God would not allow suffering or, or anything like that. And so what people are forced to do, if they bring that presupposition and then they're reading this stuff in the Bible, they're reading the Bible for what it's actually saying, then what they either have to do is, one, I've actually read stuff that said the Old Testament God was evil, um, but then they also um, say things like, well, they begin to pick apart the Bible and determine what is God's word and what is not. Okay? They pick and choose what they want to, want to quote-unquote, believe as a scripture. In my mind, 
actually, I think it's self-evident, that is the sin that was in the garden. They're determining for themselves, we are determining for ourselves, what is good and what is evil. And that was the, the, the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden, and we continue to commit because what we're going to do is ju- judge God by, by our own standards as opposed to God judging us by, by his standards. Yeah, you raise your hand when it's back there. Uh, so. yeah, um, the presupposition, men and women are equal, therefore uh, there should be no division of, of function within the church. And okay. there's something that suggests that, that women shouldn't be elders or deacons or something. Okay. God's just... So men and, e- men and women are equal, and therefore there is no um, uh, separation of duties or anything like that within the, in the church. And that leads to the same thing, where we ha- we people begin to pick and choose what parts of scripture are, are scripture and what's not. Yes, sir. A loving God wouldn't condemn people. Loving God wouldn't condemn people. Yeah, absolutely. Let, um, so instead of God is love, suddenly we end up with love is God, where love is the only aspect of God that we really pay attention to, and we ignore his justice and his wrath and, and holiness and, and things of that nature. Good, good. Um, there was a movement back in the 19th century, so 18, I think it was the latter half of the 1800s, where there were all these um, what we call liberal theologians, right? Now, when I say liberal theologian, I don't mean, that's not a political thing. Um, a liberal theologian is essentially somebody who more or less denies the, the supernatural. And so they read the Bible through naturalistic lenses. In other words, there's no miracles, um, there's really no God, kind of that sort of thing. <clears throat> and so, so what these, these folks did in the late, again, late 19th century, there's a whole bunch of them. It's called the Quest for the Historical Jesus. And what they did was they went back and they said, okay, what would we know what the Bible says, but you can't trust that. So what was Jesus really like? And so a plethora of books came out, and Jesus the the rebel, Jesus the socialist, Jesus the this, Jesus the that, right? And then uh, a guy named Albert Schweitzer, who himself was liberal, did a study of all these things and found that um, the Jesus that each of these people found followed their own, um, their, their own worldview. And so if you were, you know, um, a socialist, then you found that Jesus, you discovered in, with your in your quest for the historical Jesus, that Jesus was a socialist, right? I guess if you're an Aggie, you would, you know, think, okay, yeah, Jesus was an Aggie. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, um, so, so what people were doing is that's a great example, multiple examples of how people take presuppos- their own presuppositions and impose them on who, who Christ is. And then there's liberal feminist and, and liberation theologies, which um, read the Bible through those particular lenses. And they're all very, very dangerous. So are there any docetist-ish views? I made that word up. Uh, views today? Um, any views where people um, didn't believe Jesus was uh, actually a man, that he was um, strictly, strictly God? What's that? Okay. They'd be the opposite. 
Yeah. I think it is more common. Well, they're a little, yeah, they're, yeah, we'll get to them in a minute. What's that? I think that it is more common today for people to deny the divinity of Christ yes. rather than to deny his humanity. But I'm sure we could find someone somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't really have a good example, to be honest. I was just curious if y'all did. Um, but, yes, sir? About the uh, he gets us campaign. Oh, he, that he gets us? Social warrior. Yeah, that would be reading the, the presuppositions on. Yeah. Yeah, that, that would be a good example of that. Uh, I wouldn't call that docetic, though. Okay. But, yeah, and I'm glad you brought that one up because that one is relevant to today. Um, so, anyway, I would say, you know, I read a couple of guys that, that talked about kind of over, over spiritualizing things, but it, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't buy it. So, anyway. So what biblical texts come to mind to counter the, the docetic or docetist, or I guess docetic claim? And so what biblical texts come to mind to basically tell us that Jesus was a human being? Yes, ma'am. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, where he, he uh, did not count the equality, equality with God to be something to be grasped. To be grasped. Made himself nothing. Yeah. Taking on the form of a servant and learning obedience to the point of death. Good. The good. That's a good one. He, Hebrews. Oh, go ahead. John. First uh, John. Uh, the. I mean, the whole book is. Yeah. This, That's actually the first one that comes to my mind. It's the bottom one here. Um, we're in First John one one. Um, I mean, John, when he's writing that letter, he comes out of the gate and he's like hey, we touched him, we talked to him, we saw him we, with our own eyes, okay? So a lot of people think that there was some kind of docetic heresy um, floating around, and John was writing against that um, when he, he wrote that, that first letter. So, right. So Ignatius, um, my mind, one of the heroes of the faith, Ignatius was... Uh, one of these apostolic fathers. Um, he died in 108 AD, and on his way to being um, essentially murdered, persecuted, executed by the Emperor Trajan, um, he wrote seven letters to seven different churches. And so, you know, we have, have those, those letters. I think Tom read them not too long ago. Um, but I've got a couple of quotes by him that are relevant. He said, there's one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made. God existing in true flesh, true life and death, both of Mary and of God, first possible, uh, passable, then impassable, even Jesus Christ, our, our Lord. And he said, but if these things were done by our Lord only in appearance, talking specifically about the docetists, he said, then I am also um, only in appearance bound. So it's, you know, I know they didn't have handcuffs, but, you know, ropes or whatever. Um, then, you know, he's kind of mocking them in, in a sense, saying, yeah, then the, these, these um, bonds are um, in appearance only as well. Actually, we'll keep trucking because we are way behind. Um, the next one is... What's that? I, I live here, yes. <laughs> I li I, yeah. I, uh, we're definitely going to be doing this for two weeks. I'm going to try to wrap it up next week, though. So, uh, so the Ebionites, Ebionism, crept up um, 
possibly simultaneous with uh, the dose of this, but it seemed to be a little bit later. Ebionism denied Jesus' deity and taught that he was the son of God by virtue of being adopted by God. Now, that's going to be something that we're going to see again and again. Yes, Jesus was a descendant of David, followed the law perfectly, and was a gifted teacher, but that's it. Now, you know, to follow the, the law perfectly, that one, that, that of course, is impossible. Um, gifted teacher and descendant of David, but they did not call him God, you know. They would not, um, they did not recognize his, his deity. They just thought that he was a, a human being. The Ebionites rejected the epistles of Paul and only accepted one gospel, that's Matthew, but even that, they revised the name, the gospel according to the Hebrews. The Ebionites taught the necessity of keeping the Jewish law. So what is the problem with believing something like that? That Jesus is not God, he was just a gifted teacher. I'm sorry? I can't hear you. What is the point in his death? Okay. He was a liar. He'd have been a liar? He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be equal with God? Okay. There's no sacrifice for sin. There's no sacrifice for sin. Jeremy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anybody else? What's that? What's that? Did they deny the resurrection? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the word um, Ebionite, um, we're not 100% sure where it comes from, but it's, there's a, um, I think it's Aramean, if I remember correctly. Um, it sounds like their word for poor. And so they had a poor view of, of Jesus. So they were labeled by uh, Christians as, as Ebionite. So early in your Christian walk, do you think you could have been convinced that Jesus was not God? No. No? Anybody else? By definition. Okay. Okay. You know, because the faith that we're given is has some measure of truth to it. Okay. And, um, and, and Jesus has to be God. I went to church for months. When I first started going to church, I went to church for months. And the first time somebody said from the pulpit that Jesus was God, I about fell out of my chair. I'd heard Father, Son, Holy Ghost all my life. I had no idea what that meant. I'd never put, put those things to get together. Yes, sir? So what do they believe in terms of... I, I'm probably going to say I don't know, but go ahead. <laughs> I mean, what do they believe was a need for sight? Everybody has to just do it on their own? I mean... Yeah, I, I think... Uh, by and large, so we don't know a whole lot about what they believe because we just have fragments of their writings and then we have responses to them. But they did seem to, to be players, I guess you could say, back in that time. Um, I get the sense that they believed in like a works righteousness where, you know, you got yourself most of the way there and then Jesus would have gotten you, the, the, I guess, the rest of the way there. So why would someone believe something like this? Clearly it comes out of a, a Jewish background where they're you know, intensely, and we're monotheistic, but they're, they're intensely, strictly mono, monotheistic, had no room for, for the Trinity, and so they believed that the Messiah that was coming was going to be a um, strictly human Messiah. And so th this is kind of what, what you end up with. Um, so I said there is Judaizing roots 
you remember the Judaizers? You know, especially talked about in, you know, in Galatians. Um, it, they seem to have come out of that, that branch. And intuitively, um, are suffering and death compatible with divinity? So this gets into the flip side of what, um, what Stephen brought up a little while ago, in that, okay, you're going to have this, this suffering person, would God suffer, you know? And, <clears throat> and they would say no. And so while the docetists said, okay, Jesus wasn't human, for almost the same reason, these folks said Jesus was not God. Kind of, kind of interesting. So what did the Ibionites have to do to Scripture in order to justify maintain their belief? Did you catch what I said a second ago? They denied um, Paul. They denied all of his letters. And they ripped apart, they, they got rid of three of the Gospels, and then they, um, they essentially uh, you know, ripped apart more or less the Gospel of Matthew, and that's the only one that they, they went with. So they had to destroy Scripture in order to justify what they believed. Which, again, same sin over and over and over again. They became the arbiters of what is right, or what is good and what is evil. So what biblical texts come to mind to counter the Ebionite claim? All the, ones they rejected. All the ones that they rejected. Yeah, you can start with like John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, you could go to Philippians 2, like, um, like Hannah brought up. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of deity of Christ. Um, scriptures out there. So worth noting, the Muslim understanding of Christianity sounds a lot like Ebionism. Okay? And the idea there is um, in, you know, Israel, in that, that area, when there were Christian heretics um, that sometimes would get run off, um, they would head east, and they would go into the Arabian Peninsula, and I guess they would develop whatever it is that they were developing there. And then, you know, five, six centuries later, that's what, um, uh, almost called him Islam, that's what uh, Muhammad ran into, and that's what he encountered, and he thought that that was Christianity. So the Quran has a corrupted view of what, what Christ, Christianity actually is, and we think that um, he got it from these um, Christian heretics. Ignatius, again, going back, same guy I mentioned a little while ago, um, he said, for our God, Jesus Christ, now that he is with the Father, is all the more revealed in his glory. Remember, he also said, remember in your prayers the church in Syria, which now has, gone for, uh, has God for its shepherd instead of me. Jesus Christ alone will oversee it, and your love will also regard it. I think that's a, a really touching thing, because the guy's going to his death, and he's like, um, I remember talking to a guy one time who had a family, kind of a young family, and um, he was diagnosed with a, a terminal disease, and he, he said, it's okay, you know, God's going to be their, their dad now, you know, and uh, real touching, and that's kind of what I thought of when I read um, Ignatius' passage here. And then they'll, uh, we'll skip that. All right. So far, so good. Did I lose everybody? Everybody hanging in there? Yeah? All right. Modalism. Um, popped up in the third century. 
Modalism holds that God takes on different personas or modes at different times for different purposes or roles. It emphasizes the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness. So we've talked about, <coughs> pardon me, we talked about modalism back when we were talking about the Trinity. Um, the idea here is, and there's kind of a little bit different flavors of it, but the idea is you have one, one think of an actor on a stage. You have one actor, it's a, it's a one, um, you know, one man play sort of thing. And the actor plays three different parts. And as he plays these three different parts, he puts on a different mask in order to show kind of who he is, to show the, the audience the three different roles, right? And the idea with modalism is you have one God, one person, who plays three different roles. It's almost like he puts on different masks at different times for different purposes, right? Um, but that would be modalism. Um, you could also say you have a, you know, George is a husband, a father, and an uncle. So he takes on three different roles in three different, different ways. The difference between the father and the son is just name. It's like, just like he puts on different masks at different times. So Sibelia, yes, sir. Uh, you know, modalism is, I, I understand how people could be modalist. Mm -hmm. Because as you, you know, you, you, Scripture is so firm about God being one, you know, that there are not three gods. And then there's this, this diverse, and, and yeah. as our minds try to, Right. Flesh, we try to comprehend what that yes. looks like. The flesh is going to take us to modalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, because we can't explain, no matter how hard people try to explain the Trinity completely, mm -hmm. right. it's impossible. Absolutely. And so we have to assume it on, take it on faith. Mm -hmm. What he says is true, and then how that manifests itself when we have eyes to see, right. we, uh, we'll probably all be surprised. Absolutely. We, the way I say it is we need to know when to say when. Right, and um, there's a, a another heretic coming up uh, named Arius, and um, Arius, one of his main concerns was he believed that if you couldn't understand something, then it couldn't be true. Now, I think tacitly, that's what a lot of people think, especially in terms of theology. We accept, accept mysteries of science, and we accept mysteries of different things. But in theology, we'll say, you know, God's way, his ways are not our ways, you know, that his mind is higher than ours. We can't comprehend them. But the moment we're faced with any kind of paradox or any kind of what seems to be a conflict, we struggle with that and, and bend one of these biblical concepts into, into something and corrupt it, end up corrupting it. We put it in, we, we have a tendency to put things in terms that we can understand rather than accepting the fact that we can't always reconcile things, okay? Good point. So Sibelius of Libya was the most famous proponent of modalism. He was converted to modalism by a, a bishop of Rome. Bishop of Rome. Otherwise, well, Bishop of Rome. He, the Holy, <laughs> he included the Holy Spirit in his heresy. Most heretics just included the Father and the Son. He said that God unfolded himself as the Father for creation, for the Son during the incarnation, for the sake of redemption, and the Holy Spirit after Pentecost for regeneration and, and sanctification. 
once these three manifestations are accomplished, they fold back into the unity of God. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have no permanent existence. Hippolytus, um, and later Tertullian, wrote against um, Sibelius. There we go. So why would somebody believe something like this? And I think George already gave a, a really good answer. Because we try to take God's truths and put those in terms that we can comprehend. It, it would anybody add anything to that? No? Okay. Can you think of any verses that can be used to support this position? Clearly out of context. Well, this is where Sibelius he, he said, I and the Father are one. Uh, from John 10. It will, of course, that's Jesus speaking. And then he, Jesus also said, if you have seen, uh, seen me, you have seen the Father. Right? And so there's this idea of this um, spiritual unity, and Sibelius would take that and, and warp that into um, saying, okay, well, the, the Father and the Son are, are actually identical. They're the, the same person. Deuteronomy 6 4. Yeah, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord God is, is one. Yeah. Yep. Which, to be clear, the Lord God is one. God is one being, but there, there are three persons. Okay? And we struggle with that because we take um, being in person as being equivalent in our, in our world. So where does modalism manifest itself today? Yes, sir. Evangelicalism. Huh? Oh, you're talking about the next... Modern evangelicalism. Oh, modern evangelicalism. You want to expand on that? Just so many modern evangelical Christians are modalists and don't know it. And don't, okay, good, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, 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 they'll pray to, to God and the Father and thank him for dying on the cross and for living right. inside of them. Right. And not not have a distinction of the persons as, as three co-eternal beings. At right. All. So there's a, a tacit modalism kind of in the background of, of probably most Christians, right? Um, and then, um, did you raise your hand? Pentecostal. Pentecostal, exactly. Uh, not all flavors of Pentecostal, but oneness Pentecostals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, T.D. Jakes, anybody heard of T.D. Jakes? He used to be America's pastor, I think, if I remember correctly. Or was that Billy Graham? I don't know. But he was the most popular pastor in the, uh, in the country. I know that. And, uh, but yeah, he's a, he, he denied um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit being three different beings. And he, I remember I was watching a sermon of his, sermon, quote unquote, of his one time. And he said something to the effect of, if you want to see... Um, I can't remember exactly what the, you know, God, threeness in action. He said, go, go to your uh, refrigerator and get a glass of ice water. He said, because you have, you know, water in, in vapor and ice and liquid, or vapor and solid and liquid. And as if that is a, a brilliant theological, you know, thing. So crowd went crazy when he said that too. So, okay. So that, that's, that's modalism. All right, this one's going to take a little while. Um, dynamic 
Menarchianism. So I didn't really want to include that top title. It's also called adoptionism, right? But um, the word dynamic is actually really important here. Um, it doesn't mean moves or changes. The idea of dy dynamic comes from the Greek word um, dynamos or dunamos. Dunamos? Dudamai, okay, Dudamas. Um, and uh, it's, uh, the word means power, okay? Don't think dynamite, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about power, um, strength, kind of that sort of thing. Overwhelming, think uh, uh, wind, um, strong wind, that sort of thing. So um, Dudamai. And monarchianism, or uh, monarchy, means one rule. So what this is, is it's the idea that there's one God, and then there's Jesus, Jesus, the Son, who was adopted by the Father, and he's not fully God, okay? So that's why they call it adoptionism. Came about in the late second century. <clears throat> so the dynamic monarchianists, or um, adoptionists, get their name from the Greek word dunamos, um, which means power. The position holds that Jesus was not actually God, but that he received the power of God. This position emphasizes the plurality at the expense of the oneness. Um, so Theodotus was the first person to espouse this position in the late second century. An interesting thing about Theodotus was that he was one of the lapsed who denied the Christian faith because of persecution. But when he returned to the church afterward, he pleaded that he had indeed denied Jesus the man, but he did not, had not denied Jesus the Christ. Okay? Isn't that interesting? So he separated the idea <coughs> of Jesus as the human being from the Jesus who was adopted by the Father at his baptism uh, and became the Christ or the Messiah, okay? And so earlier we were talking about presuppositions. On the surface, there seems like there's some kind of self-serving presupposition here where, you know, he, he, was, he, his, he adapted, adopted, adapted his theology to... Um, explain away something that he had done, where he, he denied Christ um, in the time of persecution. So he believed that Jesus was uh, virgin born, but he was just a man. Jesus possessed the highest moral virtue. The power of God came upon Jesus at his baptism. This is how he performed miracles. And then there's Paul of Samosata, Jesus received a special blessing from God at his baptism. A lot of heretics point to the baptism as something, something happening, okay? Um, that's where Jesus changed in some way. And it was a significant event, but not for what they're saying. <clears throat> God gave Jesus some of his own attributes. Um, because God gave all of, uh, all of this power to Jesus, he was able to achieve moral perfection. Because he had achieved this moral perfection, God adopted him. So Jesus was a man who became a god, but he is not at the same level as the Father. We call this class of heresy adoptionism. Okay, and so we're getting ready to get into the most notorious um, heretic, I think, 
uh, probably of all time, um, Arius. And, um, but we're gonna have to pick that up next week. You have a question, Megan? Yeah, so are you Actually, by and large, the Holy Spirit is just kind of off to the side. And so the idea would be that there's one God. Um, you can call him the Father, if you like. And then um, there is Jesus the man who is, a, who is brought in and adopted. He's just a man. He's brought in and adopted by um, God the Father, and he's given power. Right. So he's not counted as God at that point either? Um, it, it's like they kind of, depends on what you mean by God. Um, is he eternal? Is he uncreated? Is he all of those things? They would say no. Um, but God gave him some, some, of, his at, um, some of his attributes. And, and that, that's where the whole idea of dynamos or power comes from, in that he, he gave this man power and so elevated him up to, to, to uh, another level, basically. So I think the idea there, really, if we think about it, would be you would have kind of God the eternal father, so to speak, then you would have Jesus, and then you would have, or the son, and then you would have kind of the, the rest of creation. And what Arius gets into is more of, you know, he's the highest of all created beings, and, you know, the language that he uses sounds like he holds them in high regard, but anything short of recognizing the one holy and true eternal God as the one holy, true, and eternal God is blasphemy, you know? So, um, but yeah, Ar Arius was, was, was interesting. Did you have a, no? No? Okay. eternal in the past, just where they would, you know. Oh, okay, yeah, eternal in the past, yeah. Yeah, or uncreated, yeah. Good. Any other questions? No? Okay. Um, we got about three minutes, so um, I don't have a slide. Well, actually, you know what? I did have one. If you're a speed reader, close your eyes. Bear with me. Okay, recipe for heresy. All right. So heresy, heresy retools biblical teaching, conforming it to other ways of thinking rather than vice versa. Think about what we just said there, right? Conforming... Uh, the Bible to our ways of thinking, okay? The docetists, who we um, talked about first, their constraints came from Greek philosophy that would not allow the intersection of spirit and material, okay? Material bad, spirit good. Um, that was their uh, driving presupposition that they had, and they, they looked at Jesus in that, in that light. The Ebionites place constraints upon Christ based upon their corrupt, Judaized understanding of the Old Testament. So, yes, there is one God. Um, and then, I mean, when you can, if, you, if we go back to what Ken taught last week, um, where you have the, the biblical theology following the thread of the, the Messiah, or the seed, or the Messiah going through the Old Testament, um, you, you get to a point, especially in, in the Psalms and some other place in Isaiah, where clearly we're talking about a divine being here in the, in the Messiah. And the Ebionites didn't, didn't pick up on that. They didn't recognize that. And so that's why I say that they had a, 
um, corrupt understanding of the, of the Old Testament. And then Arius, um, who we'll talk about next week, placed constraints upon Christ because he believed that if man cannot understand something, then it cannot be true. And as Stephen Nichols says, um, once a system has a faulty starting point and it doesn't get to any more of a starting point than who Christ is, who God is, okay, the, the Trinitarian God, once a system has a faulty starting point, it sets off a chain reaction of false teachings. Heresy on one point, in other words, tends to beget heresy on others, which beget heresy on others still. So we start off with a shaky foundation, and we begin to um, just diverge. Um, and probably my favorite um, book of the Bible is Ephesians. And by and large, the first three chapters of Ephesians... Paul lays out some amazing theology, and that's what his, the basest, basest, basis of what comes next in the next three chapters where he says, so then basically this is how you need to go live your life because of the first three, right? And it's a, it's a beautiful book. I love the way it's laid out, and that's the, the model, I think, for, for um, Christian theology. So, good. One more question. Any, anybody? No? Well, I enjoyed it. Good questions, good comments. Um, Stuart, would you mind? Yeah. Father, thank you for uh, the truth of your word that is the basis for our beliefs about Jesus Christ. And Father, um, help us to, to stand firm on, on Christ as our cornerstone of our, our faith and, and not be led astray by the, the teachings of men. In uh, Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.